You're listening to You Should Read This, a comic book and graphic novel review and discussion podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Alan. Welcome to another episode of our show. This week, we are talking about a comic book called Scales and Scoundrels. Scales and Scoundrels, which is very close to many other blank and blank titles. Huh, I wonder if that's I, w- I wonder if that's for a reason. I wonder if it's <laughs> uh somehow, you know, thematically or or world-building related related to any sort of copyrighted thing that some wizards who live, you know, near the in ocean Seattle. would in Seattle specifically, obviously. It's, well, but but obviously on the you know, the shoreline. Yeah. Somewhere. Some sort of warlocks. Oh, I, of warlocks I, on the shore. That's what they would call them. I don't think we're going to get sued for saying Wizards of the Coast. I don't right? think so either. I was just okay, I just Okay, I just... <laughs> I agree. I just got legitimately worried, like paranoid there for a second. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, this, <laughs> this is, uh, this is a, a very Dungeons and Dragons-y book. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the people who made it, and then let's start talking about it. Okay, I think real quick, though, before we get into this, uh, the people should be aware. We've mentioned playing D&D, like, already more than a couple times. But it's true. for anybody that might be listening this very first time, we're probably going to talk about D&D more than a handful of times. Because that's what we do when we're not reading comic books. We're playing probably the other nerdiest game ever created. I mean, honestly, what we're doing mostly is, like, going to work and then, like, having relationships with the members of our family. I mean, meals somewhat regularly. I, I feel like that's true. However, uh, we're trying to create um, uh, personas that people, you know, can get comfortable with and, and feel like uh, is not bogged down by the, the tediousness of reality. Because, you know, people aren't listening to this to, to remember that, hey, you know, I had pasta tonight and, you know. Did you have uh, pasta tonight? I did. I made it myself. Ooh, was it good? It was all right. I'm not, right. I'm not fantastic. But anyway, you get the idea. So we're trying, <laughs> we're trying to tell people that the only, thing, the only things we do are play nerdy games and read nerdy literature. That, Alan, you that's and I haven't shtick. played Dungeons & Dragons together since, like, November. You know, there are many reasons for that. I am not one of them. That's not true. You are at least one of them. I'm one of the reasons we have not. Oh, I guess I, I have been at least once, I guess. Okay, moving forward. Let's talk about a book. <laughs> I've been the reason a lot, too. Uh, yeah, we play a, a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. Alan DMs a game that I play. I DM a different game that I play online. Um, it's 2019, the year of the Dungeon & Dragon. Is that what it is? is that, yeah? Are we declaring that? <laughs> the I year guess, of the Dungeon and the Dragon. I guess uh, Critical Role is making millions of dollars on Kickstarter, so we might as well Good declare Lord. the year of the Dragons and the Dungeons. No, I'm not going to say that... Uh, it's not in the social zeitgeist. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I feel it's really like it's uh, sort of hitting critical mass at this point. Yeah, I'm. I'm feeling we're probably on the downslope here real soon. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's gonna. It's gonna stop being cool. People are gonna start yeah. making fun of it. Uh, it's just gonna be it's... like recording a podcast is. Like, oh, uh, <laughs> you do a podcast? Of course you do. Oh, we're already on the downslope for that. Don't oh no, I know. That's what I'm saying. Dungeons and Dragons is almost there. Um, I was telling Jen the other day. I think that uh, um. We're going to look back on the, uh, everybody. Everybody's going to look back uh, five years from now and go, hey, remember like that four year period where everybody was really into Dungeons and Dragons? Like it got really fervent there for a bit. What happened to that? And that means that in like 15 years, my kids are going to be like, Dad, you used to play Dungeons and Dragons. Me and my friends are thinking about doing it again. I wonder if, because we have, um, and I'll Jen and I don't have kids, but we have ne- uh, chest nieces and, and nephews. And inside of that chest will be, a bag of dice that has dice printed on it, <laughs> a laser-cut, hand-assembled dice tower, and all of my D&D guides. Yeah. And they'll say, no, Dad, we have it online. I don't need any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is paper? Why do you need paper? Why would you? It's like, no, you just do it on the computer. Trees, trees haven't grown in the United States for the last three years. Oh, gosh. How, We're all living how dare you? Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. It'll just be the apocalypse. Exactly. All right, what's the, what's the name of this book? Scales and Scoundrels. Scales and Scoundrels. We read the first two volumes. Um, mm-hmm. They're getting close to a third volume. Um, there's, there's almost enough issues for a third volume to come out right now. Um, but we read the first two volumes, which covers um, one issues one through, I want to say ten? Issues one through ten. Two five-issue volumes. Yeah, um, it's actually quite a bit of quite a bit of book. It all is all things considered. Uh, yeah, it's written by a guy named Sebastian Gerner, 
Um, he is, uh, a, by trade, he's a comic book writer and editor. Uh, he worked at Marvel as an editor and at Image as an editor. Some of the books that he edited at Image are books like Deadly Class. Which is kind of a big deal. Seven Bastards. Oh, yeah, which is a really good book. Yeah, both of you, who, both of those books are very well-known and, and widely celebrated. Uh, he also, besides writing this book, he writes Shirtless Bear Fighter. Which we read on the old show, Yeah, right? we did. Yeah, we read the first issue of it because it's completely ridiculous and over the top. Not as it's still never going to be as ridiculous as God hates astronauts, but it's real close. Yeah, no, it's it's like if you took the madcap zan, zany zananity. Can you can you do that to the word zany? I like the word zananity. Yeah, right, if it's not go. a word, it it's, is now. It is now. Um, put that on a shirt. The zananity takes it takes the madcap zananity of gods versus astronauts or God whatever the name of that book was. God hates astronauts. There it is. Something about God and astronauts. And then it combines it with a uh, very rudimentary action movie plot. <laughs> where he has a jet made of bear skins. Of course. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of those books where you turn the page and you'll know, of course this is what happened. <laughs> but we'll, we'll probably dive into that later. Let's, let's go back to the, the tavern where people are drinking mead and playing cards and there's a dragon in disguise you're you're such a better gm than this um the the <laughs> artist the artist of the book is galad uh which is a uh he's a, a french illustrator and animator uh this is his first uh comics this is his first his debut work as a comic book creator uh but he has done a lot of work with um video game studios he worked for ubisoft for a while in france uh and with good game studios um and the little bio at the end of the book specifically calls out how he was influenced by uh, Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, which uh, yep, yeah, uh-huh, that, that checks out based on the yep. art of this book. Uh, and then letters are by Jeff Powell, who is uh, guaranteed if you read comics, you've probably read a book that Jeff Powell's lettered. Um, I love the fact that in like 2019 we still have letters like that. That's in that's in a craft or in an artistry that has not completely gone away and been replaced by just, like, fonts in Photoshop. Yeah, it makes me really happy. I mean, letterers still use fonts in Photoshop, um, yeah. but they use it expertly. Um, I would... And, honestly, uh, that would be, like, if I wasn't... If I had totally given up on drawing, lettering would be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I might I, be into that. I have seen... Uh, I know of a few uh, comic book artists who make their money on the side turning letterers handwriting into fonts oh yeah where so it makes it easier for the letterer and like a normal font you know you've got a capital a and a lowercase a and and that's it but when when they make fonts for letterers they they'll give each each letter capital n lowercase will have like two or three different glyphs two or three different versions of it so that they can choose the right one for any given moment it's pretty gnarly actually but jeff powell's done um He's done work for like Ninja Turtles and Sonic the Hedgehog and The Punisher and Atomic Robo. One of my favorite books. One of my favorites too. We should probably Man, we read gotta, that eventually on the show. I was just about to say that. I'm like, we didn't like we we dabbled in it in the old show. We, I yeah. really just want to. I want to read two volumes of Atomic Robo. Uh, we, we should just do like a series of episodes where we just read every volume till we're done. <laughs> This is still go- ongoing in webcomic form. I did fall off on it a bit. I think that there's still. I see trades come out every so often, so I think so. Oh, awesome. Okay, I think we'll, they're doing we'll that. We'll have to look in that. Publish as webcomics and then collect them and put them in a trade. Yeah, I think IDW has the license for it now. Do they really? I think so. I thought it was Boom. No, I thought it was independent still. But it's, uh, whatever. It's it's passed around. I, I think that. Uh, the guys who are making it are are trying to be savvy with, you know, how easily can they get comics into the hands of people who want to read them. That's fair. Yeah, we'll we'll have to look into that. We'll put it on the list. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, it's quality quality podcast content. <laughs> um. So let's talk about this book. Yeah. So uh, I guess as far as let let's start with uh, our elevator pitches. Sure. So, you want to go first? Yeah, okay. I, I mean, I was sucked in this book immediately because I looked at it, and just from the cover, I was like, oh, this is like one of those Dungeons & Dragons books. 
It's like a book that's like, because uh, there's there, this isn't the only one, right? And this isn't even the right. only one on image that is like clearly these people have played Dungeons and Dragons and are familiar with the whole Dungeons and Dragons deal, and so they decided let's make a book on either my latest campaign or an idealized campaign. Right. Uh, Rat Queens is another example, though that one sort of Ooh, yeah. ventures towards the profane uh, <laughs> on purpose a lot. Uh, it reminds me of of that I saw a meme where it's like everybody hopes Dungeons and Dragons is going to, when you play with your group of people, it's going to be like Lord of the Rings, but it's really like it's always sunny and never winter. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> I've seen that. It's really funny. Because then the it's music just a hundred percent accurate. It doesn't really matter. It's always there is a I, the one I really like is a panel from a Moon Knight comic, and it's just Moon Knight walking through a castle and it says, "Come out here, Dracula, you nerd!" <laughs> and it's just the caption is, "It doesn't matter how serious your campaign is, this is how the players will always play it." Yep. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But uh, this one definitely, I think the word um, "idealize" is a, is a good word for it. Uh, yeah, because I feel like it, you know, we, we get those character moments on each one of the characters, the kind of things that you hope sort of naturally happen in a D and D campaign. Uh, you get sort of emotional resonance, you get different characters pairing off with each other for different side adventures, which is really hard to do in a real life D and D campaign, easier to do in the comics. Right. Um, unless of course you, you know, have a studio and it's sort of part of your job and, you know, unless there's money. Yeah. (laughs) Unless there's money involved in. And you have a, a DM that has been playing D&D for, you know, a couple decades already and knows how to make that work. Yep, that's true. And there's, you know, the, the subtle hints to the backstory that are, that are uh, eventually somewhat revealed. And then the, the, the revelation leads to a whole lot more mystery. Right. The, the whole um, he answer a question that, that begets another question. Yeah. And then, and then honestly, the arc of the of the main story ends about halfway through the second trade and we get three like side quests. Yeah, actually that's I mean, true. I guess which is two side quests and a, and a, uh, and a backstory dump, which I was not expecting. Uh, no. Yeah. I was, it was weird. It's almost like it should have been like a seven issue trade that tells a story. Yeah. And then like a separate like prestige format collection or something. I was thinking some sort of appendix or um, like less of less of a hey this is part of the running comic continuity and more of like hey here's some backup stories yeah that's what it felt like anyway yeah and I, and I'm I'm not caught up I haven't read the the newer issues that are out after the second trade so I don't know if they veer back into another big story or if they keep one at a time in it oh for sure like after the way that uh, this ended and we'll probably touch on it in a little bit um, but the, after the way that this one ended. I fully expect them to to keep going with that. It seems like there's a lot of places, a lot of pieces already in place, um, and a lot of ideas for this character that are sort of already planned out. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would kind of hope to feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about how we want the next issues to be, but right. I would kind of hope that they would, uh, you know, do a few more side quests and then it would lead into another story arc. Right. Let's do. Uh, but I want to hear like your elevator pitch. Like, sure, well, what's yeah, yeah. the what's the short version here? Um, it's a, uh, a, a quest with a, um, a group of sort of almost standard players in the D and D world and, uh, one wild card who no one's sure what's her deal. <laughs> um, I would, I would pitch it more as, um, a girl that the typical wander ranger type, uh, who has a mysterious past and mysterious powers. Uh, sort of is on a journey and meets up with a colorful band of rogues every so often and has adventures. Like, I would just, maybe just something vague along those lines. Because I don't know how else to explain this book without using very tropey language, because it does have a lot of very specific um, character types and missions and feelings. Um, But it doesn't, get portrayed that way it doesn't get portrayed as as bland or gray or or repetitive i actually think that this particular book has a lot of stylistic flair and a lot of heart Um, oh it's got so much heart yeah i i heart this book so good (laughs) it it definitely has a really uh it does it does a great job of bringing characters uh to the forefront when necessary 
um, and showing you what they're about without spelling it for you. Um, I mean, definitely there's some, like there's the, the prince character who left his home to go on a quest and then his bodyguard. Um, and then, you know, they meet up with a, with a dwarf girl who I'm pretty sure has a Scottish accent, although it's not spelt that way. Yeah. But, like in but the yeah, lettering. it would be easy to just imagine that voice in your head. Right. I, I definitely feel like that's the way they were going with that. Um, and she's and trying cool... to find her long lost brother. Right. And then like a really cool setting, which doesn't, I mean, it starts in a tavern yeah, as all amazing, uh, yeah, <laughs> as all amazing adventures do. Um, and then it does have, it takes this cool underdark kind of twist where, you know, you go cave exploring, but the cave isn't just like a, like a temple that they're exploring or anything like that. It's definitely more like we're, here we go mentioning delicious in dungeon again, but, uh, it is definitely more like that where they go in, they, you start in a, in a temple kind of thing and then you dive deeper and it turns into a cavern, which turns into a sort of hollow earth situation, um, which I'm always super for. I, I love the whole, um, uh, hollow earth yeah this dungeon sea. has its own ecosystem yeah yeah i love that too actually that's a that's a, a trope that i've loved since uh uh what's the name of that i don't know you're is gonna it, have to explain it <laughs> uh is it clicking no okay it's gone let me try again uh, i've loved that since uh journey to the center of the earth the jules verne book yeah mm-hmm. uh, that i read as a kid and that deals with, you know, like an underground sea and, and a different ecosystem and stuff like that. And since then, I've just been like, oh, yeah, this is the stuff. This is so cool. <laughs> to the point that I've seen that Brendan Fraser movie. Oh, really? Yeah, and the sequel. Really? That does not have Brendan Fraser in it, I'm assuming. No, no, The Rock replaces Brendan Fraser in the sequel. I mean, it's a good trade. It's it sort is. of a trade it's up, really. Actually, the second one is, is I would venture on the realm of pretty good. Yeah. It's really fun. Is the first one good and the second one's pretty good, or is it more no, no, like the second one's better? Oh, okay, but neither of them are good. That's fair. They're just fun, great kids adventure movies. Do and you feel like you can get away with watching worse movies because you can just blame it on your kids? Yeah. Oh yeah, and it makes me so happy. <laughs> I actually really love. Uh, I I have this huge love for the genre of like, like action movies that are appropriate for like seven to twelve. Yeah. Because they tend to be cheesier. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Because you can't, you can't go to the blue-collar jokes. Right. But then they sort of lean into the cheese, and they're fun mm-hmm. on their own. I, uh, feel like that, I feel like that might be like a modern twist on that, on yeah. that genre, though. Yeah, it's, it's similar to like the, like the Disney live-action movies from the 60s and 70s. Mm. I have the same reverence for like the you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea I and love Swiss Family Leagues. Robinson. I don't really care about that one. So. Oh, I love those because they're, they're like fun and the peril is, you know, kind of real, but you really know that nobody's going to be bloodily slaughtered on camera. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, I don't know. There's, there's lots of them. Usually they tend to be like adaptations of children's books. I really liked Wrinkle in Time. And everybody's like, oh, this is really? the Wrinkle in Time that I was hoping for. And I was like, yeah, because this is the Wrinkle in Time that my daughter, who was nine when this movie came out, is the exact right person to see it. Right. And she's like, Dad, that is my, my favorite movie. Hmm. And I was but, like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's how it should be. Wrinkle in Time was one of my favorite books when I was your age. I'd still love Wrinkle in Time. But, like, the main character of the book is a young teen girl, and it deals with her and her little brother missing their dad through space and time. Right. And if you tried to make it super serious for adults, then it would miss the people who the book is actually for. Speaking of uh, uh, strong female role models, we have one in this book by uh, the name of Lou. I was going to say, we have Koro. She's a good, strong female role model. Um, but Lou is, is just a, a powerful character who's also kind of, a, kind of a loose cannon. Yeah, but so definitely the chaotic neutral type. Oh, yeah. Like, for sure. Um, My favorite. And I was thinking, so the reason I went with, with Lou instead of Koro or even... Um, what was the other, what was the I dwarf girl's name? I've been wrecking my brain since I said Koro. Okay, well, when you figure that out, let me know. Uh-huh. Um, but the reason I said Lou specifically was because she has a quicker heel turn um, towards the sort of uh, more lawful side than, let's say, like your Han Solo character does. Like, I, right. I feel like they ride a similar parallel that way. Um, however, the thing that keeps her in uh, keeps her grounded in that sort of roguish mentality is less about 
how society has treated her and more about like her personal background and how the people that are supposed to be closest to her have treated her. Like for all intents and purposes, uh, she is trying to give back to society and fit into society and believes that society is worth saving. But the, the, the chip on her shoulder that she carries is the people who kicked her out of her, her, you know, comfort zone because they didn't feel the same way about humanity in that way, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I thought that was really interesting that she, like, ends up being in, like, this incredible chaotic good character. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say she's definitely not lawful, if we're using traditional alignment, but she's definitely on the good side. Right. That's a good, that's a very good point. Yeah, she's, she's absolutely, she's definitely not neutral good, she's for sure chaotic good. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I'm sorry, it makes me want to play a character like that. I mean, chaotic good is always, is always fine. Um. Real quick, I, I think, should I define chaotic and lawful just so everybody knows what the heck we're talking about real quick? I mean, I, I guess so. This is... Long story short... If you're listening uh, to this podcast and you're driving, I guess you can't just Wikipedia or that. Uh, just the, the long story short, lawful means that you're super into um, laws and civilization and people helping people. And chaotic is less about burning all that stuff to the ground and more just being less about it. So think of it like um, the rule of the jungle, the law of nature, the harmony that, that, you, that can exist without... Um, a king or or a civilization so that's kind of just the general idea so yes in that sense she is very much um about uh people helping people uh and she doesn't like authority that much but i don't feel like she ever came across as being anti-authority i think just all the authority people that you meet in this story happen to be kind of jerkwads sure but uh, no she's i mean i think that uh, I mean, the book may not be reliable about it. The book could decide to present everybody who's lawful as jerkwads. It's definitely possible. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think that she's she's certainly chaotic. And good. oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that also comes from uh her backstory, which is like I said, the people closest to her who are sort of representing a a organization of their own. They're, they're the Dragon Illuminati. Yeah, man, that was such a cool reveal, though. Yeah, Wh- so, which part? Her the her reveal. So it oh, starts should I, off. Should I have said like spoilers? Well, yeah, we do we do soft spoilers. It it does start off with her pupils changing to a very reptilian like shape, and then suddenly and then, there's fire, and then suddenly there's fire. It kind of screams dragon at you, right? Um, and there's definitely lots of allusions to her dreaming and dreaming about being a dragon, and flying. And you're sort of. Or- having a horde of gold that she laid on top of. Yeah, they don't try to hide it so much as they don't tell you outright until the end of the first volume, actually. Yeah, they just kind of imply it really heavily. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I didn't even think we were going to get that kind of reveal so early. I thought for sure that would be a much later thing. And they were just going to be like, well, you kind of already know. We don't have to tell you. But then they just straight up go, oh, no, this is the deal. And this is how this works. Well, but then it's like, oh, yep, turns out she's a dragon. But... Yeah, but she's uh like a disgraced dragon. And then she's been disgraced and then cursed to remain in a non-dragon form, which is cool. Yeah. Man, like uh it was so funny cuz uh Jen and I have been watching a lot more anime recently because that's just the kick we're on. And in every in every like shonen anime, there's always like the seven warriors of this or the four emperors of this or the the eight kings of this you know it's always like the bad guys or the good guys are always in these weird groups and that's exactly how this felt so it was like oh look they're all coming in they all have their own special appearance and their own special like personalities they're all gathered around a table uh and it just felt like a manga uh like reading a manga like reading one piece for example where it's like these are all the the pirates that work for the military and they're all super powerful and this guy's got this power and this guy's got this power it just felt exactly like that. Yeah, and that's, and that's, I think, the element of this book that's different than, like, a standard D&D book. And I think besides the art, because we'll talk about the art, uh, and, but, like, this, this book is very, very clearly influenced by anime and manga. Uh, you mentioned Delicious and Dungeon, but, like, that whole scene um, where they are in the, like, underground city, and they're straight up, like, eating the food, eating the, the flesh of a monster, I was like... Okay, guys, I get it. You've read Delicious in Dungeon too. 
Um, definitely a definitely a nod, probably. Yeah, and and then there's other parts where they were just like descending down and stuff that felt very very delicious in dungeon. And then you're right that having that that like weird cabal meeting where they all come in, and everybody has their sort of like introduction. All of the different dragon Illuminati. Also, it yeah, you're right. It's super anime. Um, but I I, I firmly believe uh, in the year in the year uh, 2019 that. It's really hard to get away from anime influence at this point. No, no, like no. The people. I think that's a. I think it's a good thing. I think that instead of just being, it's oh, it's just a D and D book. It's like it's a kind of an anime D and D book. It's kind of a manga D and D book. Which is, I think, one of the reasons that I really like it. But then it's also very influenced by, uh, you know, like French comics and and European comics. At least I in terms of the art style. It definitely feels that way. I was gonna say art wise, um, because the the artist himself is is French, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I mean, that's I had to explain that the other day, and I don't I don't exactly remember to who. I think it was to my dad, um, where I was talking about the difference between Western, European, and Eastern comics, essentially, just as like three broad groups. Um, and and I had to explain what a European comic looked like, and I just had to go like, uh, 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 Tintin, you know, Tintin, right? He goes, oh yeah, yeah, I, like. I'm like, look at that versus, you know, Iron Man. And, and I had to point out a couple of key differences, but it wasn't difficult to sort of explain, but it is difficult to, if you're not thinking about it or you don't know about it, to recognize that sort of thin line style. Yeah. But, I mean, that said, not all Euro comics look like Tintin. I mean. Okay. I, I get it. Mobius. Oh, well, yeah, but I would say Mobius and Tintin have a lot more in common. And, and, and I mean, any, any artist who's worked with Jodorowsky. Okay. Right. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm just saying like, it's, it's not just one specific style. That would be like saying all American comics look like one thing. I'm trying to like give you an example, Ryan. I'm not trying to bust your chops. This is literally the first time we've talked about Euro comics on this show. I don't want people to think that we don't know what we're talking about. That's a good point. I keep forgetting we haven't had this conversation like 48 times already. Um, okay, yes, Ryan, you are absolutely correct. Thank you for, for uh, enhancing my point. I appreciate do, it. Do, do, do. <laughs> um, but I, that being said, I definitely think that the story feels more manga. Uh, the art may be more European-leaning, but it also has like the humor and the tropes of like, I don't. I don't want to say D and D is Western, but I think I feel like it kind of is. I mean, Wizards of the Coast. It's the West Coast of the United States. It's definitely like the United States centric, right? I think that's although fair. I don't know if you've uh, you've browsed the the D and D tag on on Twitch ever before, especially in like the late night, early morning. Um, there are a lot of European people playing D and D like on stream. That's awesome. Like a lot of Russian, uh, a lot of German. Um, like that whole uh, kind of area over there. Um, Europe, it's called. Well, I'm not really included because I don't see a whole lot of British. Like British isn't the thing I see a lot. It's oh, okay. I mean, technically, I think like at the end of this month, the British people aren't part of Europe anyway. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, but you get the idea. So just a lot of um, uh, other other people playing D and D that I was not aware of, which I thought was interesting. I gotcha. That makes sense. Um, I thought it would be fun to. Uh, by the way, the the dwarf lady's name is Dorma, right? Dorma. Yep. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to to go through the characters and and say what uh, race and class they are, assuming oh, Dungeons sure. and Dragons. Yep. Um, you want to go first? Sure. I mean, I was gonna go. I was gonna start with Luvander. Sure. Uh, Which is a great name. Oh like, yeah. Honestly, I love that name. And, and the way somebody later calls it. Oh, the Lady Luvander. It's it's a it's a fun name to like say. She also has a title, which is Luvander the something. Oh so yeah, like yeah. The chained or something like that, which is super cool. Well, because yeah, she's she's been cursed, and the curse like looks like chains, and then makes her humanoid. Right. So I would call her Dragonborn. I would say Dragonborn. Would you say she's a Dragonborn? I mean, that's that's how you would play her. You would play her dragon. Here's the thing: if somebody came to me and and gave me this idea, so in the comic book, it's co- in the comic, it's called Erdin, right? Yes, yeah, that's what they call it. They don't explain the um, origin of that word, like the etymology of it. Uh, so I'm not a hundred percent sure, like what it alludes to. But if somebody came to me and said, "I want to play like a dragonborn, but that looks like sort of a like a an elf," I would probably think about it and say. Well, it depends. Do you want to just play a Dragonborn that looks different, or do you sort of want to mix and match those? Because she doesn't, she she can summon fire, 
but she doesn't have like a dragon's breath attack. Whereas taking maybe some of the other elf racials or uh, like the the int bonus you get from elves instead of dragon instead of the charisma or strength bonus you get from dragonborn is probably more useful. So I would I would probably say something like a high elf, and you can mod it to have uh, dragon abilities. All right, is sort of the way that I was looking at it anyway. Okay, I, I think that that's like that would work too. She, I mean, she does essentially have a breath weapon. It's sort of more like a flare aoe which you could sort of take as a as a breath weapon yeah that's true i guess you could just use thaumaturgy yeah or something weird like that and then give somebody like an innate ability to it there's a bunch of different ways to do that either way rogue definitely has to be or uh yeah rogue definitely has to be like the main type and then maybe you subclass it with a sorcerer or uh, or wizard I you you'd put put her as um you'd put her as a rogue before you'd put her as like a like a ranger or a fighter. Most specifically, just for the uh, the agility and the uh, the agility. That's a good point. Yeah, sort of sort of the thief cantrip, like knowing thieves can't and stuff like that. Like being able to to know your way around town and and sort of survive on your own. Like even ranger, I would put over sorcerer. Okay, yeah, I because she strikes me like like watching the battles, watching. Uh, reading the battles in the book, she's she's the tank. You know what I mean? She's the tank of of their little. I mean, not that she can take a bunch of damage, though she can. Um, she's definitely the heavy hitter. I mean, you could you could go fighter subclass rogue, I guess, or um. But yeah, you're right. There's some sort of magical element there. I, I would say something like ranger, maybe ranger thief, ranger thief, or ranger sorcerer. Ranger sorcerer would be really cool, actually. Actually, that does sound really cool. Yeah, that would be pretty dope. But like somewhere in those ways, so thief, ranger, sorcerer, kind of all mixed in. Um, or you can just skip the sorcerer and go straight to modding a dragonborn. But that that would be a fun conversation with a player for me as a DM. I would I would just have so many different like options for that. Well, and then especially if the player was like, and the ultimate backstory is that she's actually a dragon is trapped in a human body. Oh gosh, wouldn't that be such like a cool secret? To, to keep from the other players. It would be really cool, and I'm sad now that we're talking about it. I can't use it in our campaign. <laughs> uh, you kind of went the other direction. You're, you're a bugbear, so... I know. Not exactly hidden in any sense. Um, what about, I'm a bugbear, by the way, that's secretly a character we fought in a previous campaign with a, free, with a previous group of characters. <laughs> I, I was, I, I'm just going to talk about a Dungeons & Dragons game now. I had a lot of fun when everybody who was playing figured that out, and the whole table just started cracking up for like a good couple of minutes. I was very proud. That was that was pretty dope. That was my proud moment. Uh, so next up, uh, Dorma. Dorma, yeah, is just a typical dwarf girl who like struck out on her own. She's more of a miner than a fighter, so I guess you could go with just the the straight up basic fighter and uh, give her some pickaxes instead of hand axes. Yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't give her. Just you'd just say sort of a like low level fighter. I, I mean, l- level is dependent on a lot of things, but I would say okay, fair, fair. No, I didn't mean like level, like level, but just like right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't see anything in this that would make her specifically like. You could sprinkle in. It seems like more like it would be a backstory thing. Like if you wanted to give her some survival skills, some cooking skills, etc. Like if you really wanted to get fancy with it, you could uh, you could multi-class her with a druid or a ranger. Um, just give her more of that outdoorsy sort of ex- exploration type feel. But I don't think anything that multi-class would do that a backstory wouldn't. That's reasonable. I think that that's fair. Um, next up we have uh, Koro, who's the the prince's bodyguard. Right. Uh, I think I she's mean, straight fighter, right? Fighter I or sh- range? No, I would say yeah. fighter. I would say fight her strictly because she she doesn't exhibit any specific um, magical abilities. However, um, maybe going paladin and then changing the then changing the flavor from um, uh, deity based into more spiritually uh, spiritually based, and so you can still maybe maybe take away some of the magic stuff and and give it more into like um, uh, enhancement abilities. Uh, and then, you know, you got the, the protector, you have the shield, you have the, the stoicism, um, kind of classic paladin traits, really. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't think of paladin. What was that? 
Like I couldn't think of the word. Oh, okay. Like I forgot that that was a class, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, we you play, we it's been a while since you played with a paladin, so. Yeah. Well, and and um, yeah, she'd be a human paladin. And then I'm trying to remember the prince's name. Um, hold on, I got it right here. It is. Do 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 do. Hold on, I have it right here. She she only calls him my prince. Um, they call they call him Aki or a- Aki, but it's short for Aki Spjorn. But yeah, so um, honestly, he's too fledgling to really class up that well. I would you know it like obviously straight fighter. You could sort of go like uh some sort of fledgling paladin. You can go sort of some sort of fledgling ranger. There's a whole lot you could do with that. But he doesn't really have any... Oh, you know what? Go Bard College of Swords. There you go. That actually um, makes a lot of sense because he would be very educated. More educated, um, well-meaning, wandering, um, not a whole lot. I mean, College of Swords gives him um, some sort of fighting ability, but generally his emphasis is going to be on performance, um, speaking, riddle-solving, like in the comic book, etc. Oh, there you go. Nice. That's Oh, that's clever. That's clever. That would be a fun combo to play with another person. Mm-hmm. Like, like the way that they do it where it's like she's his protector and so like she's always going to come to his aid first no matter what's happening. Right, exactly. And so I think it's a very, like it's a very, I don't know, it's a not a character trait I've seen a lot in, in D&D. Right, because a lot of people just want to play the, you know, I'm in it for the money, like sort of standing on your own. Yeah. Which is, you know, if you're playing a paladin, your chances are you're not going off on your own and, and fighting monsters unless you're sort of some sort of crusading zealot. But, you know, it's an option. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, do we want to do... Uh, I guess those are the main ones. Yeah, those are the main ones. I feel like everybody else is, is just like NPC or monster blocks. So yeah. you can kind of do whatever you want with it, really. <laughs> it's true. Uh, let's talk about the art. Yeah, dude. Man. I feel like there's a lot to talk about. Um, so we talked about like this sort of uh, European influence style, and I feel like that comes out strictly in the thin lines and the sort of cell-shaded um, colors, like the sort of flat colors for the most part. However, I think that your call-out to the influence from Nausicaa is super evident in um, the sort of facial expressions and, I don't want to say like panel layout, because it's not totally correct. I. I want to go with like this weird Nausicaa dynamicism, tr- uh, like illusion. Okay. Like the the way that things move from left to right or um are scaled up to down, um definitely feels like it has that grand sense of scale that um especially in that first chapter of Nausicaa where she's in the in the glider, you know, and you're getting that whole like the scale of things and the way things work in that world. That's kind of what hit me in this one. Yeah, especially when they're like going down into the depths. Mm-hmm. yeah it's really the the sense of scale is incredible and it's and that's something that's super hard to do um i think that i think that the like i really like how cartoony everything is yeah that was the other thing that kind of that i kind of uh, t- touched on in my own head was because <laughs> i haven't talked about it yet um we we talked about web comics as having like a specific style before um and this one definitely feels like if you took you know, two or three pages at a time, you could post them on a, on a webcomic somewhere and it would look like, you know, um, every other webcomic kind of does. Uh, but I, I hate to call webcomics stylized, although growing up reading webcomics, I do feel like it has a stylistic history. While things are totally different at this point, um, storytelling-wise and, and what they're used for and, and what they were compared to the year, like, 2000, 2005. Um, I definitely feel like there's this uh, webcomic art style legacy that was left behind, and I just can't shake it. There are just some things that I look at with the with the hard black lines and the, the flat shading that just ring out to me and go, that's cartoony, but it's digital, so it equals webcomic in my head. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, like, in terms of the history of comics and comics being made, Web comics were at the forefront of all digital production. Like even well into the 2000s, most comics artists were drawing and inking and then scanning and coloring. Right. Right. They were doing everything traditionally. And then you sort of do uh, Photoshop, whatever, in post. Yeah. 
And and web comics are the first ones where they're like, no, no, we're just gonna do this whole thing online in in the computer. It saves us a ton of time and a, and a ton of money. But it it sort of led to a particular style because a lot of times there weren't pencils. It was just direct to inks or pencils was just like a real light getting. Or actually, what I've seen a lot in web comics and other ones that I see more in digital comics now is somebody does thumbnails, like tiny thumbnails, and then scans those in or does thumbnails digitally and then blows those, that up to the size of a page and inks directly on top of it. Um, I've tried both. Like Usually my, uh, usually my workflow is um, real rough like sketch layer to just get shapes and proportions down. Then another layer on top of that, which is actual pencils where I, I sort of rough everything out. And then finally inks and colors on top of that. But they're all just different layers that I can turn on and off. So you don't ever like see the pencil layer. But I did uh, last uh, the Inktober, which is uh, every, every day in the, the month of uh, October, you do a ink drawing or whatever. Um, that one I did very light. I think it was like yellow or red. Um, and I would print it and then ink traditionally on top of that. So I did all of the pencils digitally and then ink traditionally on top of it. And it's a completely different experience. Like it's, it's totally different. So it works both ways. Um, and I would think that anybody coming from either tradition to start with could very easily come out with, with you know, very good looking art um, that you could either scan back in or just post straight from your digital device, depending on where you ended up. So as far as you know, what people are doing nowadays to create the art, I feel like technology is going to be involved regardless, but that doesn't necessarily mean that any one style is preferred or um, identifiable on top of anything else. Sure. And I mean, I love the art in this book. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's not mince words. It's very, very pretty and very well done. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that really like kept me into this book and kept me going on this book is, is just how good it looks and how much it looks like like almost and it it doesn't it doesn't slavishly look like a studio ghibli production but it's definitely got that influence and it has that sort of like dreamlike fairy tale vibe in something that a lot of other times would be you know very overdrawn with muscle bound and scantily clad and lots of blood and guts and swords hacking people apart and this one doesn't have that it's it's way cuter and, and way more fun I think cuter is a good way to put it because everything does sort of have rounded edges on it for the most part. Um, but one thing that I have come to really uh, see more of and then like sort of come to respect more is the draw less, see more. And it's it's so cool to see. And we talked about this on uh, Umbrella Academy also. Yeah, and, and I, was, I was really reminded of Gabriel Ba's art looking at this too. The way, like, when a character is smaller, it's like, well, we don't need as many lines. We're just going to put a couple there, and you're going to figure it out. Except in this case, the thing that blew me away was the environments. Like, like looking down uh, that shaft, um, or uh, looking up at the hanging city, or out to that island, or whatever it is. And the more sort of nonsensical or less sensical lines that occur, but your brain fills it in and creates like nooks and crannies and shadows that may not necessarily be there. And it's only like if you could zoom in on it real, real close, like if you have the digital copy, um, then uh, uh, it's, it's, you look at it, you're like, wait a second, that kind of, it doesn't look very good. It looks like very weird and, and not well put together. But when you zoom out, it looks fantastic. Yeah, it's maddening. You zoom in and you're like, that's just three lines. And you zoom out and you're like, no, that's a whole tunnel. Yeah, exactly. And it just has to do with where those lines go. Yeah, it's it's impressive work. I really like it. And it just and because you can be so loose with the lines, the expressions come off so well also. I'm super digging everybody's facial expressions. They give off the exact sort of feeling I think that that um the artist is going for. Yeah, and I really like the colors too, like colors overall. Uh but one of the things I was really struck by is the colors on the faces. Um, because it's, it's really easy. And I feel like I've seen a lot in, in books that, that do, even when they have strong colors, faces are like a whole face is just a color. Right. And, and this one uses just colors without inks to imply not just shadows, but all kinds of things happening with faces. And I mean, we have like Lou Vander's like white lines on her face, but she's not the only one who has 
like the way the shadows play over people's faces with just a darkening of of the color that is the face like gives these very cartoony faces these very cartoony faces makes them seem real yeah just that hard shadow yeah in a way that like like nancy or peanuts doesn't you know yeah no i i is it that next level of of cartooniness right i and and like I said, that's kind of what makes me lean more towards like a webcomic era style of of art. But um, at the same time, it it's just a very quick, dirty, easy, and super effective way to create depth on on models that aren't necessarily super detailed, um, like we just got done talking about. Um, so I'm I'm super here for it. It looks great. I'm I'm okay with it. Can we talk about the wordless issue a little bit? Oh man, okay. So I I love It's not wordless. It's not wordless for no reason though. That's the thing. But you don't know that until you get right to the end. I feel like I picked up on it. And and I I was thinking about this as I was reading it. So when he walks up and uh when she, when Lou walks up to the guy on the beach and in her speech bubble is like a gesture of her waving and the guy has like ellipses. I'm like, "Okay, so this guy's moot?" Or mute. Uh, mute. Sorry, mute. Mute is the other thing. Um, this this guy's like mute. Or I feel like there's something else going on. And as the story is unfolding, I feel like I picked up on it about halfway. And then at the end, when he says, "Oh, I got my voice back," I'm like, "Oh, okay, cool." So I was correct, but they don't spell it out for you until the very end, which is kind of nice. Yeah, it's, it's basically reverse Little Mermaid. But I yeah, it totally is. But I was thinking about it the whole time. I'm like, if they're they're showing in comics, right? Oh, a non-verbal form of communication where there's no continuous movement like a movie or an animated TV show, which is hard to do in comics, in my opinion, because you can't draw out every single thing. And so, of course, they have the characters in the comic book draw. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know for sure if, like, the implication is that all of these characters are perfect artists or it's like through a series of gestures and marks on a wall, we understand, and then the writer has, the writer and artist have, you know, transliterated it into an illustration. I think it's a, I think it is, it mostly just comes down to a clever way of drawing multiple panels in a single page. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely a suspension of disbelief, where, like, he's drawing all this stuff in the sand, right? That's what you're talking about? Yeah, or the part where the uh, mermaid's scratching into the wall. Right, and I I feel like it's a storytelling device that is a little cheeky and a little suspension of disbelief, but at the same time is the same thing that the comic is already doing, just finding a compacted way to do it in canon or in story. I like I like the words in fiction. I like those words, um, which I think was pretty clever and awesome. Yeah, and I I also sort of like it was such a heartwarming story because the end of it. Luvander tells her story into the shell and throws it in there for the for the mermaid to right. to like hear her story. Tell my story. Right. Cuz I'm like, "Oh, that was kind of a that was kind of a jerk thing to do to just take that thing away from her." I mean, I know it was somebody's voice, but at the same time, it was kind of mean. She seems like a nice mermaid. But I mean, like I would be pissed at a mermaid that stole my voice, too. Obviously, yeah. We're just we're we're unknowing humans of land. What what can we know about the world? I couldn't record any podcasts. <laughs> well you could they would just have to be visual podcasts that's a youtube never mind i don't know those are called videos yeah i would just have to use macintosh hello <laughs> alan yeah but it would take a while to type out today yeah it would it would be exhausting i mean you can just write it out and then choose speak and text edit all right we're not gonna do yeah, this i guess it's true yeah um speaking of speaking of taking too long <laughs> a- alan what would you say do you think that people should read this I absolutely think that you should read this. I think that this is um, a super fun read. It's also different than the other fantasy genre stuff that we're getting at the moment, i.e. Rat Queens or the uh, official D&D comics. Um, Short of Delicious Delicious in Dungeon, which is still my favorite fantasy-based comic, uh, this is is a good, fun, and well-thought-out piece of fiction. I I would say fans of any of those books, D&D... Or even just sort of like uh, swords and fairy tale type adventures in general, would I think really dig this? Right, and I do think that this definitely comes off as being 
pretty much all ages, maybe 10 and up. Yeah, I, I agree. I think maybe there's a, there's a little bit of blood, but nothing, you know, more than a... Yeah, I've seen PG movies with worse. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I think, that, I think that you, the listener, should read this. All right. Well, that being said, uh, where can people tell us how much they love this or ask us questions about it? Uh, they can reach out to us on Twitter at YSRT Comics, uh, on Instagram at You Should Read This Comics, even on Facebook at You Should Read This Comics. Uh, you can also uh, go to our website to listen to or subscribe uh, at You Should Read This Club. What about you, Alan? How do people get to you? Uh, yeah, you can find me uh, pretty much uh, Twitter and Instagram uh, at marginally talented, M R G N L Y talented. Um, I am an artist and I draw things and put them up there for your amusement. Um, and uh, and I, I forgot where I was going with that. So yeah, that's that's me, uh, Ryan. Where are you at? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Ryan Roop, R Y A N R U P P E, uh, on Instagram for the same thing. Uh, I occasionally write about music at prestigeformat.com. Cool. We have things. Uh, we have other projects. I, f- I feel like that makes us very well-rounded. We're not just uh, podcast jockeys. If you keep eating too much pasta, you're going to be real, real well-rounded. Well, uh, I see what you did there. Hey, it was gluten-free. All right. Well, it takes one to know one. <laughs> in terms oh, right. Of yeah, that's true. And also okay. gluten-freedness. I was about to say, are we? Are you like accusing me? I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. I was trying to make a joke with well-rounded, and then it just got off the rails. <laughs> it, it it was good until I butt in. I stepped on your joke. You I'm get sorry. Better at ending this podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.